0: Hello and welcome to the final Odin's Light podcast of the series. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. It's been a great journey despite being a not-so-great year. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Today I'm talking with Don Gallagher, who is a music supervisor. We talk about how he gets into music at an early age and then plays in a band, gets into the music industry and makes his transition into film. I hope you enjoy it. If you've got any comments about this show or any other episodes of the series, please do get in touch and um, I will catch you again next year. It's going to be a slightly different format when we come back. I hope you enjoy it. Take care. Hope you enjoy the show.
1: Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm pretty good. Pretty, uh, you know, looking forward to tomorrow and the next day and six months' time, hopefully, when we're all working.
0: Yeah, it's it's, uh, frustrating times for everyone, I think. So you're a music supervisor. Uh, I worked with you recently on Hosts, but we met before that uh, back in um, Primer Studios. But why don't you let our listeners know what your background is? So who are you?
1: I'm Don Gallagher. I was always interested in films and music, etc. As a seven-year-old, I was living at my grandmother's house and my uncle Terry was also living there. Terry was a uh, well-known documentary director. For a sort of rainy day, he would set up in the parlour a screen and a projector and he would project silent film onto the projector and ask me, ask my brother, okay, what music should go with this? And then he'd reverse it, play some music. He said, what pictures should go with this? So I was seven and all, already interested. My dad was a terrific tenor singer who never made it. My sister passed her music lessons, 100% the only one to do it. She played the piano. And she said to me one day, "When I was 11 years old, hey, I know, let's write a musical. Now, <laughs> you think most kids would go, what, what are you talking about? i go, okay. So you're going to do the music she said no you write the music i'm i'm 11. <laughs> but i never went i do not know how to write music i said okay then i had what most of us had a sony walkman in our heads don't you listen to music in your head that's what i did i would sing hits of the day in my head so i thought okay i'll start thinking of a new song in my head right and um my sister lost interest in the whole project uh, I came up with an opening sequence which could only be done in a film because it's, it's a fan- fantasy sequence and I wrote my first song to go with the film. They were both rubbish, script and song. <laughs> That's not the point. You have to start somewhere. Then one day I'm watching the television and on came The Beatles and I knew from that moment what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And people who are much younger than me do not understand. They were so different, so different to everybody else and they... I mean, it's been proven the best group ever. Yeah. Uh, So I'm 15. I've got a couple of mates at school who play guitar. So I said, I'm going to start a band. And I did. And uh, I had to learn to play bass. Um, which was the easiest thing to do, or drums, but I into the bass. And we progressed and uh, uh, ended up touring London and then touring the rest of the UK. And then uh, What was you know? the name of the band? Oh, God, we had different names, you know. I mean, uh, The End. Oh, Circuit 4 Plus 2. and I, I, Rubbish, changing our names every five minutes. When we actually started doing professional gigs, we called ourselves Amazon Trust, which was OK. It was all right for a name. Then in 1971, I said to the rest of the band, we have to go to Germany and play eight hours a night like the Beatles did. So we got a gig playing a US Air Force Base outside Stuttgart. Okay, And it was, it was, it proved to be true. My brother, who's a big follower of mine, um, said to me, he, only recently, you went out to Germany, a good band, and you came back a great band, and it was the difference.
0: Because um, of all those hours
1: just playing. That, yeah, well, during the period from 1970 to 1974, we made three, four singles, all of which flopped. That's where I found out how not to promote records. I discovered that after the date, the pluggers were in the pub all day doing nothing, so it taught me a lesson. Yeah.
0: So th- and that that's when you transition into working in the industry rather than being the artist, right?
1: Yeah, I. 73, we came back from one single in 74, but that was it. Uh, quite an unpleasant um, uh, breakup. But I wanted to become a record producer. And I'm very fussy about things. Some say, some say perfectionists, others say pain in the arse. I don't know which one. <laughs> I didn't want to go straight into producing records. I wanted to know what I was doing. So I became a recording engineer okay i would know exactly what i was doing and um yeah i produced my first uh record in 1978. by that time punk had arrived and the only two genres that record labels would accept were punk and disco and i hated punk so i went with disco i knew i couldn't afford pluggers and that was the downfall of any release bad promotion so I thought I'd do something that everybody knows, a, a cover, that everyone knows, they haven't got to play it 10 times. And uh, actually I was plonking away at the piano in my 1975, my, um, my kid, the 78, of my kid's three years old. And um, he said, play Doctor Who, Daddy. And I went, no, go away, play Doctor Who, Daddy. And I didn't, but as I'm walking along the street, I said, how could a Doctor Who thing be a disco thing? It's ridiculous, hold on. Oh yeah, he could do that, yeah. So that's what I set out to do. I made an independent recording using session musicians, the Doctor Who thing, sent the cassettes for the finished mix off to all the five majors, got rejected by some and ignored by the others. So I had to release it myself and become an independent label. Uh, long story short, in the winter of uh, November, December of uh, 1978, We were, we got to number 23 in the charts and sold 240,000 singles. Nice. Yeah. I thought, I've arrived. I'll be, I was accepted as a, as a business person, Mm. but the only request I got for production was, can you do a disco version of Blake 7? Can you do a disco version of Alien? And I thought, that's it, this is not for me. Right, right, right. Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, I went across to um, the first Doctor Who convention in the States, um, and that was nice, sold a few copies there. But that was really the end of trying. I realized that the punk had taken over, and I personally, myself, I think punk is what destroyed the record industry. Um, ah, <laughs> really? What makes you say that? Because it wasn't so much the Sex Pistol or the Stranglers. it was the wannabes who listened to the thing you don't have to be good at playing instruments. Uh-huh. Ah, right. Those that took it to heart, I know, I recorded some of them and they were terrible. And, and you know, I'll tell you something, most people don't know. Because of this problem of the record labels, i tell you who was projected as punk, uh, the police, Blondie. Right. They were, but they yeah. said, we can't get a record deal unless we say we're punk. So, yeah, so I just carried on writing songs and doing what I was doing. So at what point do you transition into film? In 82, I walked into a management, artist manager's office to see a friend for lunch. And there was a panic going <laughs> I said to my friend, what's going on? They said, our major band is leaving us. To, you know, they're breaking the contract. And I said, well, you've got a contract? He said, yeah. yeah. Well, what do your lawyers say? He said, oh, it's a grey area. First time I'd heard that. Mm. I said, "Would well, you like me to have a look. And he looks at me as if I'd arrived from Mars. You know, this is what well, I'm like. You know, I've done a bit, and I sorted out their problem, and they kept the band. Um, and the guy, the manager, took me on as a in-house uh, legal advisor. And uh, I was, I was doing that well until 1993, really. But you asked about me getting involved with film. Yeah. I was on the side. Um, film companies were calling us and asking to, to clear something we published. And although they were like lambs to the story, they didn't have a clue what they were doing, and that included lawyers as well. And the idea came to me, I think I was watching a TV program, American TV film, the credits rolled, and it said music supervisor, and I thought, oh, I could do that. Whatever that is, I can do that. <laughs> right. I'd already started making, I, I, I drank in Soho, um, where all the film crews and everyone went there, uh, the Blue Post and places like that. And I started asking these friends, how do I get to be a music supervisor? They said, what's a music supervisor? And this was everybody. Mm. Everybody was directors. They didn't, hadn't heard of music supervisor in the UK. So, uh, okay, well, I'll, a music supervisor must be somebody who does all the music. So I figured that out. And I started pitching myself, telling people, I finally got a call from Granada Film. They asked me, we've got to have a meeting with the Musicians Union, that we signed something with them. And now they want a meeting about it. Could you take the meeting for us? I went, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, well, what do you charge? I said, well, no, make me an offer. He said, 500 pounds. And I thought, 500 pounds for a one hour meeting in Clapham? Yeah, I'll take that. He said, absolutely, yeah. That was the beginning, I I music, actually what I said to the guy was, pay me a thousand pounds and I'll be your music supervisor. He said, what's that? I said, what do you care? Um, And that was my first film. And then it went, I I never advertised, never found advertising help. Um, And it went word of mouth from there on. And I had at least one, sometimes two films a year, got paid Got credits. Yeah, uh, really great. Yeah. So
0: it seems like even in the industry at that time, being a music supervisor was, wasn't, wasn't that well known. Right? I, but it must have come, originated from somewhere. Like
1: In America, they had music supervisors. There was a chap here called Ray Williams, uh, who is around now, lives in the States. Uh, Dandelion Music. Um, but again, I don't think anybody heard of him either. Yeah. Um, every time I went to say the London Film Council or whatever, can I be put on your database? I said, well, we haven't got a database. We haven't got a music supervisor. Says, can you make one for me? And they did everywhere I went. They had to make a, a database uh, title for me. I, don't, I was on my third film. I think it was my third film, which was an Irish-American co-production, uh, and I dealt with the Irish side completely. But you know what? You you know as a producer what deliverables are. Yeah. Um, I sent my deliverables off to the states, and I got a phone call from the chief executive producer in in Hollywood. Hi, Don, just thanking you for your deliverables. Very good, very very good, thank you. Tell me something, Don. Could you music supervise a film based in LA? I went, well, yes, I could, but not to talk myself out of a job, but don't you have like a thousand music supervisors in Los Angeles? Oh yeah, we do, but they don't do what you do. And I said, what's that? And she said, everything, it's most music supervisors, and still to this day are, there, we know a really cool band you could use and that kind of thing. But what i would taken on board and created was one where I handle everything, everything to do with music. Um, Let's break
0: into that. What do yeah. you mean? Because a lot of people listening to this will want to know, what is it that you need to do?
1: Okay. Well, I decided that I'm the head of department. So I'm the head of the music department. And I'm responsible for everything to do with music. If it's got lyrics, even a poem, that might be a song lyric, I have to clear it. Uh, I have to clear every piece of music. I will uh, suggest composers, I will do all the legal work, the contracts, the synchronization licenses, book studios, book musicians, uh, produce uh, sound, not soundalikes, replacement tracks. I have a saying that I say to producers. If in a scene, a sparrow lands on a twig and farts in tune, I want to know about it. <laughs> any, any, absolutely anything. And I'm responsible. I make myself responsible for it. And for the budget. I'm told what the music budget is. And I make, I make it fit. And I've always delivered on time and always on budget. Uh, and that's very important to me. Uh, Well, I I can certainly
0: say from experience, your, uh, you know, your deliverables were um, extensive and uh, comprehensive, should I say. I'm surprised to hear that that hasn't been the norm. I figured it was just a sort of a a
1: framework that people worked in. No, no, there are very few, what I call now, I call myself a full-service music supervisor. Mm. And there are very few of us, very few. And i tell you what, one who is, no relations, Liz Gallagher. (laughs) (laughs) She's still out there. So I think she's an American there. Yeah, but it's very, and actually even worse now, um, I get asked to, to join LinkedIn and someone says what they are. Uh, yeah, so-and-so music, music supervisor. They call themselves a music So I go to IMDb and see what films they've done and found mm. that they've done any. Everyone's calling themselves a music supervisor these days. And when I called one person on it, I said, do you realize that you're trying to sell music to films and it's the equivalent of you working for a camera company and putting yourself down as cinematographer? It's that bad. And what's worse is it's diluting the whole genre, the whole idea of music. It seems to me
0: like uh, a lot of independent productions don't use a music supervisor. Um, I've I, I heard this. Why is that?
1: It's, a, it's a, almost an established thing in the film industry that music is something which happens in post production. Mm. So all the damage might be done in development, pre production, production. The damage is already done. They've already shot scenes with music they haven't cleared. Um, it's because they don't know. They don't know. They don't know about music copyright, they don't know the danger. I've heard people say many times that music in film is a minefield. I once asked a producer once said to me, yeah, said to me that, yeah, it's a minefield. And I said, could you tell me what a minefield looks like? Oh, yes, it's sort of barbed wire and the signs with the skull and crossbones. I said, no, that's after the war. During the war, which is you making a film, it looks like a field. So you don't know uh, what's going on. You don't know what, what will go on until it's too late. And the cost is enormous.
0: I was, I had down as a question to ask you later, but I'm going to bring it in now. At what stage should a producer be talking to a music supervisor?
1: Correctly. Right. right. When it's, if they know the music supervisor and know their work and they trust them. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. I, I can't name names. I never name names. Right? But sure. I worked on where um, a lot of it took place in a jazz club. And I read the script before they started shooting. And I said to them, make sure you get a composer who can write jazz. Mm. Because they not only do the score, they'll do all the jazz pieces for you for the same thing for me. They ignored me. They kept kept hiring me in stages, in bits, two days, a week. It's the wrong way to do it. And I was called in, in in a panic because i would given them a cassette. <laughs> cassette. you would have to translate that completely. <laughs> uh, yeah, a pre-digital tape system um, of jazz pieces that I pre-cleared with with some with some musicians, and I, and I and I was invited to go to the um, oh what was it Elstree Studio, and um, spoke to a uh, production system. And I said, so what happened to the music? I go. Oh, Oh, the the chief of the head of the band here said that they wouldn't suit. I said, don't tell me he suggested his own work, right? Yeah. I said, and have you cleared that? I said, she said, oh, he said it wouldn't cost very much. I said, have you got it in writing? No. Okay. And the band was playing at the time. They were shooting it. And um, I walked up to the uh, first assistant director in between takes. And that's a no-no. Nobody's supposed to do that. And he said, um, "He said you can't come on set. I'm sorry. I said, look, I'm a music supervisor. And I'm telling you, if you carry on shooting, you won't have any right to use the music you're shooting. And the director, who I can't name, shouted across, let him in, let him in. And I spoke to the director and told him what happened. He said, look, can you speak to this band leader about this music? I went, yeah, Okay. So I took the main leader one side, so I had a break and he had a, his manager with him. And I said, look, you haven't, how much is this going to cost per song? You said, not very much. He said, well, we reckon 12,000 per song is fair. And they were, they were doing like, like, tracks in the film. And I said, well, that's just outrageous. I said, um, I can get you a thousand pounds a song, uh, but you've got to sign the same license. Huh. Why would we do that? We're almost halfway through, I think. I said, because I'm gonna go out. If you don't, I'm gonna go out here and see the director and have this shut down. He said, You can't do that. I said, Yes, I can. I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I i I I I didn't do it then, but I got back to my office, drafted a sync licence, got them to so they signed it. Um, saving, as you can work out the production, thousands of pounds. But if they'd have me on board, all the time, it wouldn't mm. have happened. Right, yeah, yeah.
0: And you, have, you've seen this sort of thing happen a lot where people haven't been aware of what they need to do in terms of music licensing, and then they've come unstuck later on. I
1: know of films that never got released because they couldn't meet the music budget. Right, uh, right, yeah. Working low budget, or even, even, even on a medium budget. If you've spent all your money and you've got no more money, you might as well be a, a, a micro-budget. That's yeah. it, Release the film unless you've got those uh, licences. Um, and I never understand it. I, I was called from uh, Hollywood, um, a big time Hollywood production company. I was recommended by a director I'd worked with. And, they, and the producer said, we've got a music supervisor in the world, a real one, a real name one. He said, and we've got all these songs in the film but it's costing us a fortune. You know, the quotes are incredible. And my friend tells me that you're good at this guy. I said, okay, that's nice. I said, but you, you want me clear the same songs? And he went, yeah, I said, that's really difficult. You've already, you've already got quotes. I said, okay, tell me, have you got a London production company? Yeah. So you've got an office in London? You went, sure, yeah. I said, right, I said, this is what I want to do. I'm going to contact all the UK publishers and record labels that your man's contacted and tell them this is a UK production and, and negotiate. And I knocked $180,000 of the bill that's been quoted. Nice, like, nice. Yeah, and I didn't have a couple of films for them. And... So do you,
0: you, you said earlier about poetry and, you know, even, even birds farting. You <laughs> have to worry
1: more about than just the music then.
0: Not really.
1: I mean, I don't interfere in anything that doesn't cut across my. I mean, if they're talking about a location and there's a band playing, um, I'm going to okay, what are they playing? Mm. To play. Um, I've even had one particular director producer who hired me from script stage and then ignored me, like they go ahead and book musicians and. And I'd get a call from the second AD saying, "Well, we're we're doing all this music," and I said, "Really? I, I'm on a train, right?" Spoke to the, these musicians, this band, local band. So, what were you thinking of playing? then? well, she really liked um, um, "It's a Wonderful World" by Louis Armstrong. So, we're probably going to do that one. I went to see the director. She says, "What are you doing here?" I says, "I'm the music supervisor. You remember? Um, that's my son for me." I then had to, for that and another film afterwards, operate what I call Guerrilla Music Supervision. Right, what's so that? We're doing the job without letting the director know. <laughs> right. One, one film, the script called for um, a choir, boys choir, singing a Gregorian chong. And I'm waiting for the call to, to sort this out. Uh, so I called second O.D. in Spain, I said, this scene in the church where the boys are singing, when are you doing that? She's, oh, um, this Friday, I think. I said, and what are they, do you know they can sing? Do you know they can sing this particular Gregorian chant? Who's the musical director? So I got my brain box working. Okay, Spain, Madrid, and we had the internet by then. Right. So I went on and typed in Madrid got English speaking school. And I came up with two, and I up one of them, and said, have you got a music department? Yes. Who is it? told me, I got put through them. I said, could you put a, a, a boys choir together by, uh, by Friday? And what's it for? I said, it's for a film. Oh yeah. I said, I was, I'm sending you the sheet music, which I actually had to get from Spain. So no, South America somewhere. Right. Uh, Unknown. It's not a famous one. And um, I said, well, I'll see you in Malaga um, on Friday morning. (laughs) Right. So he he came down and he he brought these boys. But um, the director, the second assistant director said, oh, no, we've already chosen a choir. I said, are they a choir or are they just experts? Well, they're just experts. He said, well, I've got a choir. Do you want to shoot them? Ask the director. I wasn't going to speak to her. Um, okay, we can use them. And this, um, this teacher routined the boys from his class with this thing, and he conducted them. Um, and that was just one of many. Another scene in the film called for a, um, now what do you call it, a castrati scene. Do you know what a castrati is? I'm afraid I don't. Well, it kind of spoils the joke if you don't know what it is. Um, and certainly, the person I spoke to doing that. I called Manuel. I said, "When are you doing the castrato scene in the cathedral?" "Oh, we're doing it in a few days' time." I said, "What have you done about a singer?" "We got a singer." "Oh, good. How much are you paying him?" "Oh, you're just standard rate." Right. I said, "So he's doing it even though he has so his bollocks cut off?" <laughs> right. said, what you That's what a castrato is. Uh, uh, someone has their testicles cut off, so they're singing a the high it turned out it was a counter room and the director wanted the singer singing at the same time as i was about to give the game away the same time as the star was speaking on the same microphones and um i just oh wait, no we're not doing that I, I got the um the singer and the sound man in a corner in a, in a cupboard somewhere and we recorded these stories right and and uh, that, that's how I was carrying on with this. Eventually, you can imagine I, I resigned from working with this, this woman. I mean, never learned anything about sound, right. um,
0: how to use it. Well, it's so important to get the sound right. I mean, a great looking film can just
1: look dreadful if the sound isn't right. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I don't, I presume when I go on to a film that they've got a good sound. Rate. Yeah. Uh, don't think I've ever been disappointed. They, they pick a good sound man. Um, and I speak to them and we collaborate, make sure that things are done properly. Um, I mean, again, recording a band on stage live. Mm. Uh, but the band leader, uh, he's got no direction, nothing to mind to, nothing. And the sound man ran a cable onto the stage. And it's a, it's a device that is used for the deaf in banks and things like that. So the, the band leader could hear one, two, three, four. And, and he started, because the people dancing have got the dance or something. Right, I, I fixed that. So... Ah, uh, great. Right. So he
0: had that in his ear. Well, so it's... Right, I got you.
1: Otherwise, it would have been all
0: over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I've, I've witnessed it, mostly on other people's <laughs> films. Although, they don't tend to boast about their mistakes, basically.
0: So, music clearing is, because there's different, there's different sort of levels of um, licensing that you've got to have. So, why don't we break that down? Because I think that'll help people understand the value of having a music supervisor on board. Because I think a lot of people think, if you get permission from the artist, then you're covered. But that's not the case, is it? There's more layers to it than that. Why don't we break down those layers?
1: Well, um, there are basically two copyrights in a in recording. One is the underlying songwriting copyright, which is handled by a publisher, mm-hmm. and the other is the sound recording, which is, in the past was handled by a record label. Well nowadays, of course, you've got artists who have, own their own masters and their own publishing and all this. But even if it's your mate who you've known for years, you have to clear the music with them. I've often had to say to someone who's an indie, "Do you own your own masters?" Well, uh, the studio, no, the studio doesn't know. Did you pay the studio? Yes. Did anybody else pay? No. So you are the label, you are the master. And how many songwriters are there? These days it's usually 12. Um, <laughs> because you know it takes 12 idiots to write a, a very bad song, really. But um, it, it, historically it's one or two or three writers. But it isn't the writers. I mean, I worked on a film once where the an American, again, an American film, where the director said, oh, I'm okay, I know Mick Jagger personally. I said, that's great. He said, I said, but Mick Jagger doesn't own his publishing. Mm. He said, no. He, he signed it all the way years ago. to that evil uh, manager person that they broke up over, um, Alan Klein. So, and he, and he doesn't own the masters, the record companies do. So you've got to deal with. The publisher and the record company. I, I make sure everything's clear, everything. I mean, I got stopped in the pub one day. Uh, oh, this is my friend so and so. He might need your advice. Okay. Well, I'm on, I'm on a break. But anyway. He says, I worked on this film and I was to play, I'm an actor. He said, I was to play a busker. And they shot me playing a busker in Covent Garden or, or Leicester Square or somewhere. I said, now let me, let, me, let me suggest something. Did they tell you what song to sing? Oh no, they said, sing anything you like. I said, then did you sing one of your own songs? He went, yeah. Did you sign any paperwork? No, okay, I'll take it for real. Um, I want 20% of what I get you. Um, so I, I did, I, I took pity on the production. This was starting to have an effect on me because I was trying to get into film. I was being a little bit soft with the, the film production. So I got in 4,000 um, pounds. That's the kind of thing that I know happened all the time. And most of the time, nobody noticed until the film, until you, de- until you deliver, as you know, yeah. and you say, well, you deliver it to the distributor and they go through everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They certainly do. I preferred it in the day before digital because I printed my delivery. It was a book. And it had headings, song, orchestration, all the way through But until they deliver it, the production doesn't find out. Um, My company's called Cue the Music. I don't use company name because people hire individuals in this game. And I got a phone call from, it's called Cue the Music. Limited. And that was formed because I got a call from an Irish producer that I'd done three films for. And uh, he said, We've just finished this film and we're out in the wilds of County Sligo or somewhere like that. And we had this marching band in it all the time, but we never thought of We don't know if it's what they're doing. And we can't get our final payment until we can produce licenses. I think they're beautiful. So I went, well, When have you got to do it, Brian? He said, today's Friday, probably Monday or Tuesday, the latest, I'll trip it. And you got nothing from me, where's the location? He said, well, it's in, he told me it's a place in Ireland. And what was the name of the pub you're drinking? It was the whatever, okay, I'll look it up. And I called this pub. I said, you know, you had um, this film made a few months ago. Oh yes, it's wonderful. I said, and there was a sort of pipe band, a marching band, do you know, who that leader of that he hold on he said patty there's someone on the phone for you i <laughs> was lucky and it was the um i spoke to him he said, yeah. he said i said what were the chins you played oh old old irish traditional thing i said right so um you you are the writer no i'm not I said, yeah, you are the writer. What's your name? (laughs) (laughs) Right, just so you've got someone's name to put down. (laughs) And and you, of course, are the leader of the band, so you understand. If you say so, I said, right. And I've got him to sign all the sync licenses. Right. And it's done on the Monday morning. But that is not unusual for me. I can do crazy things like that. Not unusual at all. What's the best bit of your job? The best part of my job is finding out I will get a... An email used to be a fact, but I will get an email from the director, uh, copied to the producers, with his chosen songs for the film. He'd been cutting to those tunes for six, seven weeks. These are my songs. Could you clear these for us? And we're talking about the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, everybody famous. You know, so he chose from his record collection. Mm. Not uncommon. And I, I, I'd given up trying to argue with people. I wrote back, copied the producer. I said, I think it's a fantastic choice. I make this $2 million. Can you confirm that's in the budget? And then just let them go on with it. And they finally, the, the producer, produced, the executive producer, would come back and say, look, we just haven't got this. What have you got there? told me. And it was in the 30 million camera. And I said, okay, I will look at, I want to rough of the film. I will look at every scene that's got this music in. And I will send you and the director five to ten songs to replace them. They're originals, no one's ever heard of them, but they're really good. Uh, He said, but people will know. I said, well, no, if you take the Rolling Stones out, they won't know it was supposed to be in there. Sure. So the best bit of my job is where I replace famous acts with unknown acts. And the director comes to me after and, say, and says, I prefer your songs to the original. That's and magic for the artists as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, and I, by the way, I don't do soundalikes. I, I won't, there, there are some states in America where the law of passing off still applies. And if, if a, the rule of passing off is if a reasonable person would think this was the Beatles, then you're passing off. So I don't do sound the lines. What I do is I tell the the writer, producer, um, I want it to have the same effect in the film, in the theme. I want it to, okay, so if symbol if a symbol crash um matches a cut, put the symbol crash in. So I create a song. I said, but I don't want it to sound like the original song. Okay, so that's what I do. Um Sometimes I'll use, um, I'll do an exact copy of the backing track, Mm. Uh, completely different voice on it, so nobody can claim it's passing off. This is something else I have done in the past and will do in the future. I worked on a film set in 1927. The director, who I locked horns with Mm. and then became a really good friend, he said, I want, I want, you know, Paul Whitehouse and Louis Armstrong. I said, You're running out of names, aren't you? (laughs) Well, I said, well, it, I said, how old are you? He 63. I said, and you can't think of any jazz musicians in 1927. What do you think your audience is going to think? I've said this loads of times. Mm. If, if you think your audience is going to know the difference of songs, even from the 60s, your audience is too old. <laughs> you don't want that audience in your cinema. So what I did with this guy, I said, look, put whatever famous pieces of music and artists in your film scenes. Uh, Just put it in, right? And I will then find replacement. Mm. And what my old mate, Mark Stevens, who's not with us anymore, he would do, he would go through the um, the original song, and he would write a a chart doing um, click track. Now bear in mind, click tracks didn't, it it happened until the 80s. They sound great, but they're not exactly in time. I mean, no, most people just wouldn't get it because they're all together. So he wrote a click track which followed them. Then he wrote a song.
0: Which followed that click track.
1: That click track. Right. And went in the studio, recorded it. I mean, we recorded it in Dean Street Studios. Um, and we had a band. How the hell did you find? You don't just hire a trumpet player for an 1827 or a For a 1927 band, they played differently. So right. I, a, a tribute band. Right. And they came in. They were great. And the funny thing was the drummer came in, in a um, White Times house. <laughs> and, right. And I went, crush, you're really doing, you're really living it, aren't you? Oh no, because I've got a gig after this. <laughs> right. I, they sound authentic as hell. And when I went back with the recordings to the dubbing studio, the mix, uh, I said there's a the things and, and they put them in. He says, and the guy says, Christ, they fit. So, well, of course they fit. Well, we don't ever get that. We have to sharpen it. No, no. I said, they fit. That's what we do. And, and well, we did like seven or eight of these Dixieland type um, jazz things. It was great. And, and I loved it. Uh, another thing in that film was a scene where the love interest, the woman, comes into the house and she's been to the shops. I bought a brand new album, let's put it on. And they put it on. And the sound editor went, or well, the editor really, went, uh, so we'll have to make it sound poppy and crackly. I went, why? So that's what old, uh, 1927 they did. They might have popped a bit, but they did no crackles and pops. I said, we'll put some little, little pops in if you like, but I said, so we're we're going to record something new for this. And I said to the director, the great thing about this is it will have a plug-in where it sounds like nineteen twenty-seven. It sounds like a 78 record, because they sound totally different. Mm. But you've got the option of it playing, sounding like that in the scene, and then cutting away to the outside and having it in full glorious stereo. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. As long as it's to do with music, I do have an input on other things. But only when it's to do with music. I wouldn't dream of crossing the line. Hmm.
0: I remember you saying to me, uh, it was a good quote, that a flop has an orphan and a hit has a thousand parents. And that's a music industry um, quote. But I think you were making a point about putting them, if you had a song in a film and the film flops, then, you know, and it's not seem like no one's going to care. But if you have an unlicensed song in your film and the film's a hit, then you might run into some problems.
1: You film, I've had a music recording where they haven't cleared something, and the response is, well, maybe nobody will notice. Yeah. And if films are flop, nobody will notice. But guess what, if it's a hit, everybody will notice, including the people who own the music. So that's mm. the reason that's saying there are others, it applies to recording singles, whatever, and to a degree would apply to films. But I've had it in the past where they said, "Oh, I'm sorry." I, the drummer said, "Yeah, I was up late last night, and uh, I didn't have any breakfast, and in playing like it wasn't keeping time." And I said, "I said the label's not big enough." I said, "What, what do you mean?" I said, "Well, I can't put on the label." The drummer would have done a better job if only he'd gotten to bed early in the night because it's too long. <laughs> Basically, there is no uh, there is no excuse. Right. If, it, if it shows it's not a director of a film, it's got to be, the shots gotta be right. Um, I've said it to uh, music, musicians making recordings, it applies equally to film. I said, this is gonna be around forever you really want to be listening to that on the radio? And like, Ooh, ouch. I said, don't get it right. And this, was, this is going back to the days when you did live takes. You know, I, I, my first job as an engineer um, was working on uh, two, two-track, machines, Right. Then you progressed to four-track, and then eight-track, and so on. So speaking to engineers, producers, artists now, they're they flabbergasted. How did you make a Trump set? I mean, they used like 16 tracks for a drunkard. Uh, I said you had to know what you were doing, basically. There was no option. Well, Don,
0: thank you so much for your time. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot more, and I thought that I'd <laughs> already learned a lot from you. But uh, I really appreciate that, and I hope that, uh, that our listeners have too. Uh, if anybody wants to get in touch, you'll find Don's contact details um, on the podcast uh, notes. Don, thanks again. You're welcome. <laughs>